Hello, and welcome to the Yeah No Journal Club podcast. In each episode, we dissect an article from the psychiatry literature with the goal of understanding both the clinical importance and key aspects of research design and methods. We start with a single confusing sentence from the paper and go from there with the goal of getting from, yeah, no, I don't get it, to yes, yes, this totally makes sense. I'm Dr. Adrian Dela Cruz. I'm an assistant professor and associate program director for the General Psychiatry Residency Program in the Department of Psychiatry and the Peter O'Donnell Brain Institute at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I'm Marissa Toops. I'm an independent psychiatrist and a clinical affiliate assistant professor at UT Southwestern Department of Psychiatry. I'm Adam Brenner. I'm vice chair for education and professor of psychiatry at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And the paper we're going to talk about today comes from Himanshu Taiji. I think Taiji is my best guess as to his last name. And colleagues, uh, the title of the article is A Randomized Trial Directly Comparing ventral capsule and anterior medial medial subthalamic nucleus stimulation and obsessive compulsive disorder, clinical and imaging evidence for dissociable effects. It was published in Biological Psychiatry in 2019, volume 85, pages 725 to 734. Adam, do you have a sentence from the paper you'd like us to discuss? Um, Yes, The, the very last sentence of the paper. Tractography findings revealed that ventral capsule and anteromedial subthalamic nucleus deep brain stimulation modulate distinct brain networks implicated in OCD and are compatible with these clinical and cognitive observations. Dr. Toops, do you understand that sentence? I do. Um, I, I also understand that sentence. Um, and I think this is the, the kind of sentence that makes this paper so delightful for Dr. Toops and me. Um, I have compared this paper to chocolate and peanut butter, the delightful combination of a clinical trial and neuroscience all wrapped into one. These authors are examining two questions at the same time. Um, they have a set of clinical questions um, about which DBS targets will be most effective in decreasing symptoms of OCD. And then they have a separate set of questions about the neuroscience and how stimulating those circuits will change brain functioning, whether or not that's related to OCD symptoms. They actually do a crossover design um, in which they have two different sites at which they will be stimulating. So, So they're implanting electrodes in both sites. And at sometimes they're stimulating one set of electrodes and sometimes they're stimulating the other set. They start off with, after they've implanted the electrodes and people have recovered from the surgery, stimulating at either the ventral capsule or stimulating at the anterior medial subthalamic nucleus. And then they're gonna compare what happens both with OCD symptoms and with some other stuff when they're stimulating at the two different sites then they wait for a period of time, then they then they cross people over and they stimulate at the site that they didn't stimulate at the first time. Um, this paper is also remarkable in part because it has an N of six. So there were a total of six people involved in the trial. Um, they all had severe refractory OCD. Um, and they, when they say severe refractory OCD, that is exactly what they mean. Um, everybody in the trial had to have OCD for at least 10 years, as well as unremitting symptoms of OCD for at least two years with a Y box. The Y box is the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive 
symptom scale. Um, the YBOC score had to be greater than 32, and they had to have a DSM-4 global assessment of functioning of less than or equal to 50, and with no sustained benefit from at least two SSRIs that they were on for a minimum of 12 weeks, as well as with augmentation of an antipsychotic or a super therapeutic dose of an SSRI. They also had to have two trials of CBT, one as an inpatient for a minimum of 10 hours. So they were really taking ill patients into the yeah. study. The patients have brain surgery for DBS electrode implantation, and then they're given four weeks to recover from the surgery. And then the study phases begin. Each phase of the study starts with two weeks of admission for adjustment of the DBS stimulation parameters. And then they remain on that optimized setting. It's established in the first two weeks. They remain on that for 12 weeks. There's a whole bunch of phases. And we're only going to focus on a couple of those phases. The primary outcome from a clinical point of view was the Y-box score. So the, the scale looking at obsessive compulsive disease symptoms. The Y-box is scored with a combination of number of compulsions um, as well as the no amount of time a person spends on them. So a lot of what drives up the severity is, is the time component, how many hours in a day they're spending doing their behaviors. And the secondary outcomes, which are related more to the neuroscience questions, were depression symptoms measured via the MADRAS, the Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale. The other neuroscience-related outcome was cognitive flexibility measured via a, the set shift task on the Cambridge Neuropsychological Test Automated Battery, which is referred to as the CANTAB. Which is extremely commonly used for this. And I mean, basically what they ask you to do is they give you a task with a certain set of rules and then they change the rules and they see how long it takes you to like move to the new thing. Um, and, and then they'll have some that are... Um, uh, where you have to sort of suppress uh, distractors or other things like that to measure like how quickly you can change focus from one thing to another thing or maintain focus. People who have limited cognitive flexibility will pick, will keep picking the answer based on the previous learned set of rules instead of being able to change and through trial and error, learn a new set of rules, and then pick the next correct answer. There's a card game called Set, uh, where you have a bunch of cards with like different shapes and colors and patterns, and you put a bunch of them out, and the challenge is to like pick a set of cards that match each other on some dimension. And, and that's basically a, a set shift task. The methods then goes into a bunch of their procedures around how they did a bunch of the brain stuff. Um, yeah, which are cool because it's actually very difficult to image people who have stuff in their head. And so they used a lot of sort of tricks to get data despite that. So the, the first thing that they talk about is how they're going to look at the volume of brain tissue activation. You've got implants that you can use for electrical stimulation in someone's brain, right? Um, and so you turn those on and they're sending out electric current and brain systems are going to activate in response to that. So usually usually we think of it as suppressing activity um, in the regions that we, we're calling it stimulation, but it usually actually dampens activity in the areas that we put electricity in. 
Yes. And that's because our, the stimulation that we're delivering, it's electricity, it's current, but it's not bio, it's like a square wave. And so the neurons oftentimes just respond to that by basically they're just like chronically depolarized and they no longer fire. And so you want to know both, what are the areas that are turning off because they are being directly stimulated? And how is that direct stimulation affecting downstream areas? Yes. So, but they also have, as Dr. Toops pointed out, this problem of like, there are metal things sitting in the brain. Those metal things are going to be picked up on the imaging. And you don't want to just know like, well, where physically are the metal probes? Yeah. I mean, and so if you ever have done an MRI with somebody who has metal in their head um, because they've had an implant like this, um, it looks like they've got a black hole basically in their head in the scan. So you see this sort of distorted area that's sort of blacked out. Um, and it makes it um, difficult to uh, get good images. And in this case, of course, they were helped out a lot by they could get high quality anatomical scans before patients were implanted. So even with that distortion, then you kind of knew it was already there yeah. um, before the surgery and that helped them a lot. Yeah, so they, they took scans before the electrodes were implanted, they took scans after, and then they used various anatomical markers to overlay the two images on top of each other so that then they could remove the artifact just from where the, the implants were sitting physically in the tissue. Mm -hmm. um, from there, now they have a, um, a baseline of like, what does the brain look like structurally with the electrodes in place? And then they can use MRI to determine areas of activation in response to simulation. Then they do a bunch of imaging as well as a bunch of math. Um, and part of what they're looking at is on MRI, what are the voxels? Like what's the physical space being activated at the same time? A three-dimensional pixel. Thank you. Now, can I, this, this is one of the things that that is confusing. Now you're talking about areas that get activated, but uh, but I thought we were just saying that that the stimulation results in things being shut down. Well, so we're they're stimulating at least in one case very clearly an area that's hyperactive during the uh, during NOCD is the idea, and it's inhibitory. So the idea is that when you turn off the inhibition, then you're going to see normalization of the circuit. When I say activation, what I should really be saying is blood flow, oxygenated blood flow changes. Yeah, so they're measuring a couple different things here. One of which is the, they just have an anatomical scan, but they also do tractography, mm -hmm. which looks at the flow of water in the brain. And so in places that are a white matter bundle where it's all fibers pointed the same direction, water only flows you know, parallel to those fiber bundles. So you can, you see the tracks there. Um, and then they do functional analysis, which is mostly looking at changes in oxygen levels, which are assumed to correlate with changes in blood flow. And in this type of analysis, they, they usually will pick some points in the brain that correspond to sections of cortex or a nucleus. And you're looking for relatively synchronized changes in activity in those areas. If blood flow always goes up in this area, when blood flow goes down in this other area, we assume area A is inhibiting area B. Back to the old Hebean postulate that neurons that fire together wire together. <laughs> right. 
yeah, but you can't measure the firing directly. You just can, you know, the only thing that you can measure is uh, the hypothetically the blood flow. So in summary, the methods are people with severe OCD stimulate at a couple of different brain sites, measure the symptom response to each of those stimulations, measure mood changes, measure cognitive changes in response to those stimulations, then double check your work and be sure that, and to know that I stimulated at this site, it caused this change in the way the neurons are activated or unactivated, activated or inhibited in Mm -hmm. response to the stimulation. Moving on to results. So I'll just point out that the trial participants did in fact have severe illness. They had five men and one woman with an average illness duration of 20 to 30 years, many of whom were homebound due to their symptoms, one of whom was permanently hospitalized. Several were on super therapeutic doses of SSRIs like sertraline 400 milligrams, citalopram 120 milligrams, Um, And several also had antipsychotic augmentation. I mean, you expect for the most severe people that their meds are going to be sort of like desperation meds. So now when we look at clinical symptoms of OCD, so DBS decreased scores on the Y box. So that's improved OCD symptoms, decreased scores on the Madras. So improved depression symptoms and enhanced cognitive flexibility. So better able to set shift and to, to change the rules. Each of the stimulation sites alone improved the Y-box score equally. So that's both stimulation at the ventral capsule improved Y-box score and stimulation at the anterior medial subthalamic nucleus decreased Y-box score. The overall decrease was the same. There were some differences in responders. Um, So they defined responder as a 35% decrease in the Y-box score. Three of the six patients were responders with subthalamic stimulation while five of the six were responders with ventral capsule stimulation. And then when they optimized the stimulation parameters for each individual patient, like gave, gave each patient the stimulation in which that patient did best, they got to six of six responders. Well, and I mean, in some of them, it's really, really amazing that they went from being totally dysfunctional to having a score of less than five on the Y box. Several of them had really, truly dramatic improvements. Stimulation of both sites together wasn't different than stimulation of either site alone. You you could get a good response for each patient using the optimized procedure, optimized stimulation parameters at one site or the other. Yeah. And you know, but that's so weird because it's pretty clear that only one of the sites affects cognitive flexibility. And so that makes you start to wonder about like, are there differences in what's going on with these patients? Maybe. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I think that's what's really interesting about the paper. So before we get to the set shifting, let's just look at the Madras real quick. So both of the stimulation sites decreased score in the Madras, so decreased uh, symptoms of depression. There was more of a decrease when that stimulation was at the ventral capsule than- Yeah, but they both significantly decreased depression symptoms. And given the number of patients, I'm kind of like not- excited about that finding. As excited. I'm not as excited. The really cool thing is that stimulation at only the subthalamic nucleus improved cognitive flexibility. So that's that set shifting task. We The only times that you see improvements in a patient's abilities to have cognitive flexibility 
to change the rules on the task that they're doing is when they're getting the stimulation at the subthalamic nucleus. So now then the rest of the results are about on a brain level, what is each of these stimulation sites doing? When they are stimulating at the ventral capsule, what they're able to say is the, the actual tissue they're hitting was the white matter of the ventral anterior limb of the internal capsule, as well as adjacent portions of the nucleus accumbens, head of the caudate, globus pallidus, and putamen. This is one of the sites that they have used both for depression and OCD. And what exactly is like the magic has been debated. And at first they were really trying to go to the nucleus accumbens for depression because we see that that area is dysfunctional in depressed people. And, um, and then people started realizing that maybe it was the fact that you had to just poke right through the internal capsule to get to the nucleus accumbens that was causing the effect. And I would say it's still not clear. And this paper at least verifies the lack of clarity in a clearer way as opposed to necessarily providing an answer. <laughs> but then there's a question of, all right, so they're, they're stimulating the ventral capsule. That direct stimulation is hitting all of these structures right around the ventral capsule. Via tractography, they are able to say that this affects the medial orbital frontal cortex, the medial dorsal thalamus, the amygdala, the hypothalamus, and the habenula. And that's probably both an upstream and a downstream circuit. And they talk about the idea of it being about effort and motivation. But to me, OCD is a lot about salience. And so you're, and you're also getting some salient circuit in there. The problem that people have often is that something that is completely not important just seems super important to them. And it seems like modulating that has got to be important in OCD. And it's plausible that this activity is is modulating um, the ability to like focus salience more accurately um, as well as maybe motivational stuff. We, we put kind of all of the findings together. Stimulation at the ventral capsule decreases OCD symptoms and also decreases depression symptoms, doesn't affect cognitive flexibility. And it does that through mediating communication between the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the amygdala, right, subcortical structures that are about taking in stimuli, processing those stimuli, and also the orbital frontal cortex, which is part of decision making and is some of the cortical yeah. input on this is the importance of those stimuli. And now if we switch and look at the other stimulation site, the subthalamic nucleus, the electrode is hitting the anterior inferior medial medial border of the subthalamic nucleus and spreading into the ventral tegmental area. So this is a really deep subcortical site. And via tractography, that stimulation affects the lateral orbital frontal cortex, the dorsal anterior cingulate, the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, and the medial forebrain bundle. Putting all that together, if you stimulate at the subthalamic nucleus and hit a little bit of the VTA, you will decrease symptoms on the Y-box. You will have some decrease in depression symptoms and you will improve cognitive flexibility. And that's all being mediated through a circuit that includes the lateral orbital frontal cortex, the dorsal anterior cingulate, the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex and the medial forebrain bundle. I, I have a memory from, from a grand rounds about the cingulate having some importance in resolving conflicting yes. experiences yes. or signals. So is that relevant to the cognitive flexibility? So, so I think so, but with OCD in particular, the idea is that normally 
the signal goes from the cortex through the cingulate and a bunch of other regions all contribute to making the decision about what to do. But there's something that is called the hyperdirect pathway, which goes straight from the orbital frontal cortex to the subthalamic, subthalamic nucleus. And that in OCD, that hyperdirect pathway becomes too strong. And so instead of being processed through all these other regions, like it's supposed to be the orbital frontal cortex and the subthalamic nucleus are like, do this and only this forever because they're like really too connected. And so what they think they're doing is disrupting that hyperdirect pathway with this stimulation and allowing the other pathway to be more active. But yeah, normally the, the cingulate is really involved in comparisons between different scenarios or different um, inputs that you have. And so then that makes sense a lot with a set shifting task, right? right? Which requires you to integrate different sets of inputs and make the decision about which set of rules to follow given the parameters that you have at this moment. The reason why this is so cool is because we are not at this point with other disorders. Most of the stuff like depression and anxiety it's like the same brain regions all the time are always dysfunctional. And we don't have any idea about like where you might want to intervene on a circuit level to like make any difference. And it's almost like the, the um, functional findings are just tautological. Like if you're currently depressed, this is what it looks like. If you're less depressed, you know, you can like give people like short term interventions where they just feel a little better in there. You know, they don't, it, it's, it doesn't look like a robust anatomical or neurobiological like intervenable thing. Um, and similarly with the brains of people who have schizophrenia and things like that, it's also, those are probably problems at the synapse architecture level not really, you know, it's a global brain problem. So OCD is like really exciting because it's, you could actually say like, can we identify where the problem is and stick an electrode in and zap it and then it will make it better because we understand how OCD works. And it's also so cool because this level of detail is the kind of work that's been done in animals and animal models for years. And the fact that we can now do it in people is yeah. so cool and like so hopeful. We're, we're, we're moving our yes to yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And plus, I mean, these are like, to me, um, the most miserable patients, people with OCD, they have horrible subjective distress, they're miserable. And it matters a lot if we can treat them. Unlike uh, an episode of depression, there's generally not even the likelihood that over time, they'll come out of it. Right. So for completeness, Adam, how are you on our starting sentences? Much, much better, <laughs> much better. So, so I, I, um, the discussion about what tractography is um, is very, very helpful here in terms of 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 understanding that what they're interested in here and what they're able to demonstrate is not just that at these two different brain sites. They were both effective for OCD, but they had some difference in the secondary outcomes. But that then they're able to, through the tractography, show that the difference in the secondary outcomes actually has to do with really different circuits. And it's really cool. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Yeah No Journal Club. Prediction of the Yeah No Journal Club is supported by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology Faculty Innovation and Education Award, awarded to me, Adrian Dela Cruz. 
The opinions and views shared in this podcast are the views of the individuals and do not represent views of any institution. Specifically, the opinions expressed do not reflect those of the ABPN, UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT System, or the state of Texas. You can find the Yano Journal Club on your favorite podcast app. Please rate us and write a review. Visit our show page at www.yahnojournalclub.simplecast.com. That's Y-E-A-H-N-O journalclub.simplecast.com to learn more and find links to the article abstracts. We love your suggestions. You can email us directly at yahnojournalclub at utsouthwestern.edu. Do you need materials to run a journal club? You can find our journal club superstar curriculum the AdPert Virtual Training Office, or by visiting our show page. Keep listening so you can stop worrying and love the literature.